Welcome to the Exec MBA Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, we return to our ongoing spotlight on entrepreneurship in the Executive MBA program with a conversation with Matthew Boyd, a recent graduate in our Executive MBA class of 2023, and his wife, Janelle. Matthew and Janelle recently launched a wine venture called Boyd Crew, and I caught up with them to talk more about the idea and inspiration for this venture, how things are going uh, for Matthew, how his time here at Darden uh, shaped the business and idea, and so much more. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's my interview with Matthew and Janelle Boyd. Matthew, Janelle, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Brett, thanks so much for having us. We sincerely appreciate it. Thank you, Brett, for having us. We're glad to be here. It's great to have you here. Now, Matthew, uh, longtime listeners will recognize your voice, but Janelle is new to the podcast. So uh, thank you both for taking some time. I imagine you might find yourself, Matthew, with a little bit more time these days than you had, say, oh, I don't know, a month or two ago. Congratulations on graduating and finishing the, the program. Thank you, Brett. I appreciate it. I, I honestly thought I was going to have more time, but I'll be honest with uh, Boyd Crew Wines keeping me really busy right now. Not as busy as, uh, you know, prepping for cases and, you know, Monday, Thursday, sometimes even though a Tuesday class in there as well. Um, but it's definitely been nice to be have graduated from Darden, um, but it's also you know beautiful to be able to spend more time with my family and more time with my wife running boy crew wines. Excellent. All right. Well, it's great to have you here. Janelle, tell us a little bit more about you. Um, who are you and what's your background? Sure, sure. Um, so I am um, Janelle Boyd with Boy Crew Wines, but also I am, I guess you would say, a, a um, serial entrepreneur as well. <laughs> this is my second life in entrepreneurship. Uh, first being I've, I um, have run a event planning firm for the last uh, 12 years, uh, which is currently called the Eventful Life Enterprises. Um, and we do a lot of corporate planning, but have shifted a bit into uh, different, what, what I call curated experiences um, that, that really just help people celebrate life's, life's moments. All right. So a serial entrepreneur and Matthew, uh, for folks who haven't heard your first interview, tell us more about your background. Yeah. Well, thanks, Brett. I, I will be you know, remiss not to say my wife's more than that. She has been a phenomenal uh, partner uh, previously to you know, her starting her own event planning company. She was actually a regional director for a large uh, senior living company um, and, and then actually was then a, a regional director for another healthcare company as well. So she has lots of business acumen, business experience. She has a, a bachelor's uh, undergrad in marketing and in Japanese, uh, minor in Japanese studies, spent two years in Japan teaching um, uh, Japanese kids how to learn English, and then also is a mother to our two fantastic boys. So I'll start off, I know she's humble, but I'll, I'll, I'll put up a little, a little braggadocious uh, for her there. Um, but my background is actually deep in the sciences. So, um, you know, I'm a doctor of pharmacy, so that means I'm a pharmacist by training. Uh, previously completed a fellowship at Howard University Hospital, uh, predominantly focused in oncology, then spent about four years at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital as a clinical oncology pharmacist with them, and then was recruited to go to Parkview Health. And at Parkview Health, I was a, the oncology pharmacy leader for the Parkview Cancer Institute, where I spent about two years there working with them, still do some consulting with them as well. And finally, now I'm currently in my full-time role 
uh, as part of Boy Crew Wines also, as I'm uh, a full-time medical scientific liaison with Janssen Scientific Affairs, which is a part of Johnson & Johnson. So I work all in oncology drug development. Um, basically what I do is I bring research, clinical trial data, scientific data to large academic and community practices so they can be able to hopefully support their patients and provide you know, better lasting and do more doable uh, cancer oncology products to those patients. So it's a fantastic experience that I have and I, I love my work, but I also love Boy Crew Wines too. All right, so y'all y'all have a lot going on is basically my, my takeaway from your introductions. Um, and so um, the purpose of this conversation is really talk more about this venture, Boyd Crew Wines. And I wonder, Matthew, where did the idea for Boyd Crew Wines come from? What was the inspiration? Um, you, you know what? I, I will say, and I'll answer this in part, and I'll let my wife answer some of this too, because I think she she has a you know a different take on our stories. <laughs> I will say, you know, early on, you know, in our marriage, we had, we were kind of planning out what do we want to do in retirement, and we both are, you know, uh, both enjoy wine. So we were, you know, enjoyers of wine more than necessarily creators of wine at that time, and we always thought that we were retire and own our own vineyard and winery. That was our goal, you know. So we said, by the time we're fifty five, sixty, we want to own our own vineyard and winery. You know, fast forward to probably about five years ago, we really got serious on saying, you know, how do we actually get to this goal and dream of ours a little bit quicker? Um, and then we got really hooked into the D.C., Maryland, Virginia uh, wine kind of scene and, and got an experience in hands on, you know, from selling wine to working with people who were doing harvesting to really getting our hands wet in multiple different places. And then I would honestly say what kind of probably prompted us a little bit quicker was the pandemic. You know, once the pandemic hit, that really took a huge you know, portion out of what my wife was currently doing. You know, there were no opportunities to necessarily do events at the time. And my wife said, well, what do you think about me jumping feet first and doing it full time? So I'll pause there and transition to her so she can finish the story. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're doing a great job. Um, I, I do think that, and, and I'd say this to preface, uh, you, you're going to get the, the facts from Matthew. You're going to get a little bit of the, the fuzziness from, from me. So, um, so I will say that uh, a lot of what he shared, that, it, that is exactly how uh, the interest you know, came about. But what I'll also say, and this is to make it much, um, I think, very relatable for a lot of people, is that um, the pandemic did really, for us, bring things full circle in terms of understanding that, um, you know, we're in the midst, we were in the midst of a time where a lot of us were realizing that, hey, we if we're going to do something that we've always wanted to do, now's the time. I think it really showed us that, um, you know, life is short, number one. Um, number two, are you really living life with purpose, right? And so something that, as Matthew mentioned earlier, that we've always wanted to do for the last 15 years became very uh, relevant to us. And, and it was an awakening. Also coupled with what I think also a lot of people can um, identify with is that we had some some losses in our family, um, and and they were some very instrumental losses to us. And those family members, um, you know, in a, in let's say a way of honoring them because they were very much about um, living life with purpose, community, family, 
um, legacy, if you will. And so in, uh, in a way of honoring them, this seemed like a sense that made um, a step, excuse me, that made more sense to us than it had before. That's such an interesting, interesting backstory for this, because you always wonder, like, why does anybody start uh, anything, you know, and particularly a, a wine venture? Um, I figured that you would have the enthusiasm for wine as part of this, but the, the pandemic story, kind of how it may have focused you on what do we really want to be doing here, living with purpose, you know, what's that purpose? I'm also struck by the fact that one of your retirement goals was to own a, a vineyard. Um you don't hear that every day, Janelle. Um, it, how did you come to that as collective? Like, this is something we want to do. It's certainly not by um, thinking that you now all of a sudden won't have anything to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think with two small children, a, a lot of our our friends actually looked at us like, "Okay, you're you're nuts." But um, but I do think that in retirement, I think that's coupled with. Um, what we said earlier about uh, legacy, right? Um, when you're thinking about retirement, especially when you do have family um, that includes small children, you do start thinking about, you know, what is that going to look like for us and for them, right? Um, and I think Matthew and I have always both said, which I think a lot of people can understand, which is, you know, what, what are you doing? What are you going to be doing in retirement that still allows you to do something you love, right? Um, but kind of do it on your own terms. Um, and I think sometimes, unfortunately, we don't always get the benefits of retirement in a way that actually allows us to do those things. Instead, it might be, well, I'm, I'm in retirement uh, ages, but am I really doing the things that I want to be doing during retirement? You know, um, And that's something that's, that's really important to us uh, especially as we start looking at the fact that we're a little bit more seasoned in in in, in age. <laughs> so well, there are lots of different directions you can go with wine enthusiasm. You could open a wine shop. You could, um, I don't know, start a wine club. Uh, we've had different people from the program uh, kind of have wine-related ventures. So it's not uncommon for an executive MBA student to have this particular uh, interests. Um, but Matthew, how did you decide where you wanted to start uh, in terms of the expression of, of your of your wine venture? I think we, we always wanted to start with, you know, really understanding how wine is produced. Um, so we took a couple of different steps of really under getting that understanding. So, you know, just starting out and saying, okay, do we want to be owners or do we want to just be investors? And from our perspective, we thought, you know, well, we see all these other owners, we see all these other people, but we also want to know that we had a level of control over the, what was produced, you know, over what was going to be the final product versus just being a investor or opening up your own wine shop where, yes, I can tell you about the wine and I can say, yes, this is a, a particular rosé from France, but I don't really actually own any of it. So we want to actually be owners. And that was the first step and first part of us kind of making this decision. The second step was really thinking about, okay, what region do we want to be in? And there are multiple different ways you can take being a quote unquote producer or having a winery or a vineyard. You have some people who take the route of, okay, I can buy grapes from uh, France or I can buy grapes from California. I can produce that, that those particular grapes in my production facility and wherever in the U.S., put my label on it, 
and then put it on the market. We decided that wasn't right for us either. We really wanted to go in and say, okay, what we want to be hands-on. We want to go from soil to bottle. So we wanted to be hands-on with it and not just be a quote-unquote marketer of it. So that then led us to saying, okay, well, you know, where is the opportunity? You know, as we looked in this region, we didn't necessarily want to move to California, Washington State, or anywhere else. And we said, well, where's the opportunity? And we said, you know, uh, let's look at Virginia, let's look at Maryland. We looked at both opportunities. And what we found was there are over 300 plus wineries and vineyards currently in Maryland. There's only, I'm sorry, in Virginia, there's only 80 um, in Maryland. So there was like, okay, there's an opportunity here. You know, there's, this is an opportunity for us to be able to come and bring something to the Maryland market that might not already be there, might not be already offered. So we decided we wanted to stay focused in Maryland. And then that last step was, okay, how do we start out as what we would consider a boutique winery, not having all the overhead, not having all the capital to even be able to get the overhead because, you know, of course you need the upfront cost of land, you need the equipment. Both those are two barriers to entry to even thinking about getting into being a vineyard and winery. So then it was all about creating relationships. So we have, you know, gotten our feet fully planted and ingrained in the Maryland wine market. Um, we've been able to connect with, you know, many of the people who are current owners of the years in wineries. We've gotten the opportunity to get some experience with them. We've created relationships with them. So now we're kind of fully there in knowing this is the market we want to be in. We want to produce grapes from this market. We want to be able to highlight the wine that can be made in this market and stay true to that, um, not be something different, be really true to who we want to be. And I, if I can add, I think yeah. I think there I think there was also a um, being different factor that played into it as well in, when making the decision because speaking specifically to us wanting to knowing that we our our end goal was to be winery um, slash vineyard owners we did not see that there was diversity mm -hmm. in that particular aspect of the industry. Um, there are not many um, women-owned vineyards, um, particularly here in, in Maryland. There are not many um, uh, vineyards that are owned by um, people of, of color, right? Mm -hmm. So just the diversity aspect was very influential to our, us making that decision as well. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about what Matthew just described and knowing just a little bit about the wine business. It is, as noted, capital intensive. If you're talking about producing your own wine, it can be a number of years before you actually get to production. So one of the things that some labels do is just try to get off the ground they buy grapes from other places for a while until their grapes are harvestable. So where are y'all in that continuum? Like, so you decide you want to produce your own wine, you want to be a producer and you want to get started. Where, where do you start? So we started with um, finding a vineyard here in, in Maryland that we could partner with. Um, and so we established, did some research established, um, as Matthew mentioned, established some relationships with different organizations um, here in the Maryland area to kind of give us a little, some direction 
um, as to who would be good to reach out to, um, what are the, who are the players, right? Um, and so we established that relationship with, with what is called an alternating proprietorship, where we can now uh, produce our wine utilizing um, the vineyards that we have leased through them, as well as their production facility. So going back to what Matthew mentioned earlier, that would alleviate that overhead cost that is usually, you know, a part of that barrier to entry, but allowing us to still stay um, true to our principles of why we're doing this and how we want to bring that um, layer of awareness to the, the Maryland agriculture. And, and so that's how we got started. Um, it has actually been a wonderful process because of the vineyard that, um, that is also actually family owned uh, and has been in business now for over 20 years, um, you know, I, I think 10 plus years as an actual, actual vineyard, but they were already in the farming um, industry. And it's been wonderful because not only are we able to partner with them, but we're also being able to continually learn as we grow, which is really important and instrumental to us as well. And I think that that's the one thing that we found from, you know, this experience is people are willing to be mentors to us. You know, it, you, know you just got to be able to ask the questions, be willing to listen, be willing to learn and be willing to get your hands dirt. You know, that's one thing that, you know, some people can find with the wine industry is, oh, yeah, if we get to sip wine and, you know, it'd be all nice. And this well, really, you know, at the ground level, it's about farming. It's about agriculture. It's about, you know, trusting the land and respecting the land. And, you know, part of us is, you know, we also wanted to find a place that was doing things the natural way where you weren't necessarily adding extra water because one of the challenges with adding extra water is now you're kind of diluting what maybe would have, would have been naturally produced. And part of that production is the stress that the grapes, that the vines go through to produce the grape is actually what produces grapefruit. Um, so all those things and all those mechanisms, we want to find a vineyard that did things the right way as well. You know, Matthew Janelle's earlier point up, it was a family legacy. That farm is, I believe, 100 plus years owned mm -hmm. in that family. So that was really important for us to be able to support another small business um, uh, as we, you know, kind of got on our on our feet. So, what wines have have you produced thus far? Um, have you have you? I know when I was at a recent executive MBA residency, you were passing out uh, some bottles of wine that I think people had maybe requested or, or paid for or something. I, I couldn't figure out exactly the full transaction, but it was cool to see. So um, tell me, how are things going, Matthew? You know, things are going really well. I, I would say we have been phenomenally blessed so far in this experience. Um, you're exactly right. So Brett, we are, our, our website's live. We went live with sales in late April, had our first launch event, had a um, you know great experience so far. We actually produce three wines. Um, we produce our Living Legacy Red Blend. Um, that Living Legacy Red Blend was actually recently announced as a Silver Award medalist in the Maryland Wine Association and Comptroller's Cup. Um, and then we also produce our Free Spirit, um, our Free Spirit Rosé. That is actually a gold uh, medal winner and a, uh, a best in class best awardee. In class. 
for rosé produced in, in that same competition. And then lastly, we produce our Vidal Blanc. Our Vidal Blanc is 100% Vidal Blanc. I always tell people it's not that our Vidal didn't win any medals. We actually just did not have it um, bottled yet for that same competition. So we're very proud of what we've been able to produce. Um, we're, we're proud of the reaction from the marketplace, uh, from being able to showcase what we've been able to produce, come up with a flavor profile, a taste profile that people you know, sincerely enjoy. Um, and, and I think the medals, you know, of course, provides backing there. We had a lot of confidence in what we produced, but it's always great to get that confirmation. And I think, you know, just from people's responses, from the tastings we've done and from uh, getting medals from, you know, these are blind tastings. So it wasn't like we had any <laughs> opportunity to influence anything. Everything was blinded. But to come out as a, uh, a gold medals and best in class for our free spirit rosé and a silver rewardee for our living legacy was really phenomenal. And we're, we're proud, very proud. Janelle, I'm curious, uh, how do you decide how a wine's going to taste? Because to me, I, I always just assumed it's like you take these grapes, you harvest them, you put them in a barrel, you come back and check on them. But I may not necessarily, it's a gross oversimplification. And Matthew's comment makes me think that you have a bit more of a hand in the flavor profile. That's that's absolutely correct, Brett. I mean, I, would, I, would, I wouldn't go as far to say that... Um, you know, that all of it is is left up to us because because Mother Nature does do what Mother Nature is going to do. Um, and that aspect of it, you you can't control, which is actually uh, part of the beauty of, of making wine. Right. It's it, I always say it's part art, part science. Um, and I think the the um, art part is really being able to, you know, for lack of better words, manipulate the wine uh, once it gets into barrel, um, well, actually before it gets into barrel, being able to add different yeast strains uh, strands to it that will um, affect how the flavor profile of the wine tastes using different barrels. Um, if you have a barrel that has, you know, been, let's say for example, um, has been influenced by whiskey, right? Um, and you use that on a red wine that you're creating. Well, now you have a, a red wine that has been, you know, influenced by this whiskey barrel um, that's now going to have a different type of note and flavor profile than, let's just say, a regular Merlot that, that gets um, you know, fermented in like a, a oak barrel. So there's a lot of different elements that um, do allow you as the winemaker to influence that wine in a way that, you know, is going to make it, hopefully make it something that people love, right? Um, and I think that's really the beauty of it. Sometimes the best mistakes, what you think is a mistake, actually turns into some of the best wines. Um, and that's really, you know, where the, um, you know, where the magic really happens. So um, I always say, you know, to people that once you see the, the life cycle of what wine goes through from grape to that bottle, you have a whole new appreciation for that wine that you are now drinking. <laughs> Matthew, how long is the life cycle? I mean, let's, so, so you had this idea, you want to get involved. You found a willing partner uh, that's vineyard in Maryland. You say, okay, we, we want to do these wines. How long do you have to wait until you actually had wine in bottles to hand out to your classmates? 
So that was probably about a two-year process. Um, that was about a two-year process from being able to create the partnership to then be able to go through the harvesting cycle. You go through your harvesting cycle and then you, you know, and, and I would say with our rosé and with our Vidal Blanc, those are not, those are fermented, fermented in uh, stainless steel tanks. Mm -hmm. Whereas our uh, Merlot rosé was actually, uh, or I'm sorry, our uh, Living Legacy mm -hmm. um, uh, was actually, uh, and that Living Legacy is our red, red blend. Our Living Legacy red blend was actually fermented in uh, French oak. So, you know, those are two different processes. That French oak and that process is a little bit longer and more time intensive. Uh, you need to turn the barrel. You need to rotate the barrel. You do some pump overs and things like that. So you do some of those similar things to both, uh, both stainless steel aging versus in barrel aging. So all that took about two years. And then you go through the bottling process. Like I said earlier about our Vidal Blanc not being bottled for the competition. Well, you have things that happen. You know, the steamer for the bottles had broken at the production facility. So we weren't actually able to um, bottle our Vidal Blanc at the same time as we had bottled everything else. So sometimes you got to adjust on the fly for those things. And then getting our labels approved. And that's a whole process through going through the uh, Bureau of Alcohol and P Tobacco of just getting a label approved. <laughs> that took uh, two months, maybe. That took almost two months just to get our labels to prove the goals on the bottle. So everything all in all took about two years. And, and like I said earlier, you know, it, it was a process and it did take that period of time and, and having a partner like my wife here to kind of do much of the heavy lifting as I was, uh, you know, finishing up my MBA <laughs> training uh, was, was really important to have. I'm listening to all of this and like, I'm thinking about all that you have going on and like, who, who is doing this? Who's following up with the Bureau of Alcohol? Um, and tobacco? I would say it, it was, it, you know, one of the things we did probably a little bit, uh, it was probably about nine months ago, back in September, or actually uh, August of last year, my wife, she stepped away from her role as an executive for a, a, uh, a company. And she stepped away from that role and went into doing um, boy crew wine full time. And that's what has allowed us to really have that runway to be able to work in. And she's been the big mover and shaker. And I come home and she said, Hey, you got this look at this look at this look at, and I need approval on this. And, and so I'm like, okay. Uh. <laughs> so that, that has been, she's been the, the, the main uh, person leading this effort uh, since since August of last year. Yeah, I, I think it's good to know in any endeavor, especially entrepreneurial endeavor, know your strengths, right? And know, especially if you are partnering with someone, even if it's not someone in your household, like a spouse or what have you, but just even if you're partnering with someone who might just be a partner on the, on the um, outskirts, knowing what your strengths are and what their strengths are. Um, you know, Matthew says he, you know, I was putting his stuff in front of him, but that's because, I, you know, we understood he is more of the financial, the, the operations, the um, knowing, you know, those things to look at while I was out front, you know, doing the, the initial research and things like that um, to make sure that we even know, you know, where to go. So I, I think those things are really important because even even as an entrepreneur, a one person, you know, one man show, um, it's really hard to, to think that you're going to be able to accomplish all of those things yourself. <laughs> 
So um, also another sort of one novice question. Uh, so you mentioned this two-year process, right? And, and you start putting things into barrels. Do you have a sense of what it's going to taste like, Matthew, when you put it into a barrel? Uh, or you just have like a guess or you have an aspiration? Uh, like, what is that like? We, we had a pretty good idea of what it might taste like. You know, when you put put Merlot into a barrel, you're, you got a pretty good idea. You put Barbera into a barrel, you got a pretty good idea what a bar, just 100% Barbera tastes like. So that shouldn't be too different necessarily. I think certain years are going to be different based upon how much sun, rain, fall, you know, cloudy days versus not cloudy days. Those type of things can change some of the flavor profile of wine. But overall, we, we thought we knew fairly well what it's going to taste like. I think one of the things that we've really leaned into, and this is one thing we've been really upfront about, and, and probably what most people don't know is many wines are actually blends. <clears throat> Normally, if you pick up a bottle of Merlot, it probably has some percentage of something else in there and not just 100% Merlot. So we've been really upfront, like with our Livy Legacy uh, Red Blend, that's a blend of 70% Barbera. Barbera is originally an Italian grape, um, 10% Cabernet Franc, 10% Merlot, and 10% Malbec. So it was really that melding of those four wines that really got us to that flavor that we wanted at the end um, after we've done multiple different tastings. So we we went to the production facility and we sat down and tasted, and this is early on in the process, you know, maybe uh, six months ago of tasting the wine right out of the barrel, you know, kind of doing some manipulation, saying, oh, it needs a little bit more time in barrel, or maybe add, a, add another smidge of Merlot to that, or imagine another smidge of Cabernet Franc to that. And, and that's where that, Art, as Janelle talked about earlier, really comes in. You know, you want to artfully be able to create that flavor profile that you think and hope and pray <laughs> that your uh, clientele or your customers want. Um, and that was the art part that we were really excited about being able to go through. And um, like I said, we're just proud of how, how at the end of the day, everything turned out. Yeah. In research. Oh, yes, definitely. And and going back to me bragging on my wife, she did a uh, three month wine, uh, wine making apprenticeship in the Finger Lakes uh, in New York with a uh, once again, a family owned vineyard that had a relationship with Cornell University. Cornell has this huge viticulture program where vineyards and wineries send send their grapes for analysis at Cornell Mm -hmm. from all around the world. But I know uh, 100 percent from all around the United States. So that program was also really instrumental to you know, us having that knowledge base to be able to speak about what we wanted and how we were really going to end up getting it as well. Wow. Uh, Janelle, how was that program? The three months, were you up in the Finger Lakes for three months or was it a distance program? I mean, what did that look like? Yeah, I was um, staying on site um, at the, at the vineyard. Um, I was understudying a female wine maker, um, their lead female winemaker there at the vineyard, and, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, learned everything from grape to bottle. Um, you know, we did the harvesting. Um, we did a lot of the trial runs daily of testing the um, wine when it first goes through its first pump over, uh, the yeast being added. Um, you have to t- check what it's called BRICS levels. You have to check the BRICS levels every single day 
when the wine is first fermenting so that you can make sure that you know how the process is coming along. So you can't just put it in barrel or tank and say, okay, we're done here. Um, you really have to stay on top of it every single day so that you can see how it's you know moving along. Um, if you notice anything that's out of whack, especially if when you once you add the yeast, because the yeast start to be eaten, right? Or they start to eat, I should say, they start to eat. Um, and then if they are going too fast, then it could totally throw your wine out of, you know, out of sorts and you can end up with something that obviously isn't going to taste very good. So, um, so it's really important to keep an eye on that. But, you know, 90% of winemaking, I don't know if people realize, but 90% of winemaking is cleaning. So a lot of what we did was make a mess to then clean it up every single day. And, and so there, you know, I, I hate to, to uh, demystify the romanticization of it, but um, that is, that is really what winemaking is. It is, it is cleaning up the messes that you make on a daily basis. <laughs> Y'all really taking the shine off of the wine uh, making industry. Uh, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of waiting. A lot of cleaning. Lots of waiting. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but the How end did you? Just, is <laughs> I mean, that, I, I, just a quick question for you. What does it mean? Uh, what's the pump over mean? I, I don't know that terminology. So pump over is when the the wine is first put into the the tank. Um, like let's say, for example, the steel tank, then the first thing that has to be done is the, the um, skins, right, are going to be um, sitting and basically allowing the juice to come up and the yeast to rise. And so once that, ha once that process happens, then the pump over is where they literally drain it in order to take all the residual, like the skins and the yuckiness of the yeast and things like that to get that out of there, because obviously you don't want all of that sedimentation and things like that to go into the actual wine. So once that's taken out, then that's what's called the pump over, where then the actual juice of the wine is put back and pumped over into back into like a secondary tank. They might put it back in the same tank, but usually it's into a secondary tank. All right. So how did you, uh, Matthew, determine the label that was going to go on this thing? I mean, there's lots you can do anything with the label. How do you decide what effectively represents this, this uh, passion, this pursuit of yours? I'll be honest. I'll say, you know, we had a really good marketer who is, you know, my wife, she's an expert marketer. Um, so that's, <laughs> that's who really, you know, was, was behind. If you've seen our label, you go to boycrewwines.com. It's C-R-U, crew means growth. Um, so part of us is, is saying, we want you to come and grow with us. Um, so that was really, you know, at the center of our label and design is come grow with us. We're vibrant. We're fun. We're, you know, we're all about, you know, you enjoying the wine. You know, one thing that's probably a differentiator from us, if you turn on the back of our label and you look at it, you know, our wines are all about moods and moments, less about what you're supposed to taste. Um, what we found was so many people are enamored with a quote unquote flavor profile and you got to taste this. And then when, when we talk to friends, they're like, well, I don't taste that. So am I doing something wrong? Am my taste buds wrong? Da, 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 da. And really it's, you know, and I'm going back to my science background. I understand that everyone has a different taste, 
buds, actually. You know, we we done genetic testing, and I can tell I can do a genetic test of you, Brett, and your taste buds are going to be slightly different from mine. Mine are going to be slightly slightly different from Janelle's. Women actually have are able to taste more of that umami flavor, so that savory flavor. Men not so much. There are different people who can different taste more sweetness. There are other people that taste less sweetness, less sour, more sour. So I know that. So because we know that, we're like, well, let's not tell people what they're supposed to take. Let's tell people when they might want to have our wines. Are you celebrating a birthday? Well, you might want to enjoy our rosé. Are you sitting back and you're going to be out on the deck on the nice evening, sitting next to your loved one, enjoying a, a beautiful sunset? Well, you might want our living legacy. You know, if you're going to be out in on a spring day having um, a nice day out in the park with your family, you might want to bring bring along our Vidal Blanc. So those are the types of moods and moments we wanted people to think about and less about what you're supposed to taste or what we think you should taste. So that's one of the differentiators that we really want to lean into. Um, and then lastly, it was all about, you know, just making the wine inclusive, you know, so anyone can see themselves in our wines. Um, so we, we really want to lean into that. And I think we, I think we hit that out the park. What do you think, honey? I think so. I think so. I, you know, I think, I think Matthew summed it up very nicely. Like that is, those were our, our, you know, mainstream goals. Um, and just to really, I think the inclusive part was really big for us is just really sure, making sure that people felt like it was approachable, um, that it was not, no pretentiousness, which unfortunately wine has, um, you know, had, had a stigma attached to it for being a little pretentious. Um, and so just really wanting to make sure that our, that our wine didn't give that feel um, so that people can just get to know it and, and, you know, get to know it with everything else set aside. There's lots of competition in this potable space. You have wine, you have craft beer, you have your less craft beers, I guess more, more mass consumption beers. You have the craft cocktails, uh, you have all this hard seltzers. Like how, how do you get known, uh, Janelle? How do you break in and say, all right, we're here. You should try this wine. That's, I mean, it's so, so going back to our differentiators, that was a big part of making those decisions, which I'll be honest, were a little unnerving at, at some point uh, because we all know, you know, it's, it's like the, the thing that's unique and different and kind of like, well, what is that until it's like, oh, we love that. Right. So, <laughs> so going with, uh, you know, these kind of bright, uh, vibrant colors. Well, that was because what we saw in the market is that most labels were uh, white. Most labels were kind of the standard, either white, black with some sort of, um, you know, gold or black or standard writing on it. And so we wanted to break out of that mold. What we actually wanted to um, really showcase is more of what you see in the beer industry, which is a lot of artistry, a lot of colorful, playful colors. Um, you always see, I used to, I made this remark one at one point, I said, every time you see people drinking beer, you see them having fun. I said, how come we see people drinking wine? You don't see them having fun. And so, you know, that was something that we really thought about um, when deciding on, you know, the colors, uh, the moods and the moments that Matthew mentioned earlier, that was another, you know, big differentiator, but for the purpose of appealing to people in a different way and making them a little curious, like, hmm, 
I've never heard that expressed that way before. This is worth checking out. I want to see a little bit more what this is all about. And that's exactly what it's done. It's actually piqued people's curiosity, but in a great way. We, I, I can't tell you how many times we've heard, wow, I've never heard it explained that way, but it makes so much sense. That is the best compliment that we could ever hear because that means it's doing what it's supposed to do. Well, Matthew, was your time at Darden helpful to you as you grew, developed, uh, Boyd Crew once? You know what? It was immensely helpful. You know, one of the things that we, you know, really was a was an, a huge opportunity for me in particular and, and for I think for both of us and for Boyd Crew overall was you know, the opportunity to make mistakes, the opportunity to, you know, do what I would call test cases, you know, and. It was funny, Brett, I've probably said in the previous podcast and that, you know, one of the things I really enjoyed about Darden was the low stakes environment, uh, you know, being a leader, uh, being able to kind of create arguments and see how it lands on your classmates. And there's really no huge impact, meaning for the most part, no one can hire you or fire you. They might be able to hire you, but they can't fire you from your current job, most likely. Right. And I really was not expecting that to translate into boy crew lines, but you know, we had this fantastic class called Entrepreneurial Thinking with Greg Fairchild. He was phenomenal. Um, and that was the class where I actually got a chance to put together my our, our pitch book. You know, we had a pitch deck and that we had to put together for the class. And I got a chance to revise it. Greg looked it over and I revised it more. Uh, finally, my group voted and said, hey, after talking with them through the pitch deck, they're like, hey, you're further along than we are. You need to be our group res representative to present to the class. Now, I think they were just throwing me on the bus because no one else wanted to do it. <laughs> but that was my opportunity. So I, I raised my hand. And I said, hey, I'm happy to do it because that was my opportunity to get our pitch deck in front of 40 to 50 other students and then be able to give me in real time feedback on how my deck came across to them. Once again, low stakes environment, but with people who possibly could be our consumers with people who are gonna be consumers of other things. And that just got us an opportunity to get our deck in front of people without their quote unquote being judges behind it, without there being any anything uh, outside of my letter grade, which I did really well in that class. Uh, but it was just, you know, a huge opportunity. And that, that pitch deck, we had our marketer um, look at it, revise it, help us with it. That pitch deck, then we use that same deck to go into a couple of pitch competitions. Yeah, one of which it helped us to win. Yeah. It, uh, we won second place in that in that contest. So that that was that. I mean, that showed its tremendous value. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just just in that alone. Yeah. yeah, and I think so far, what do you say, honey? From uh, from that pitch deck or from the pitch competition we've done, we've won close to forty to fifty thousand dollars in. In like seed money, grant money, over forty thousand dollars so far. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Nice. That's a, that's awesome, man. I, I had an inkling, Greg Fairchild, in that entrepreneurial thinking class might might come up. But the entrepreneurial courses, I think, are really powerful for executive MBA students or any, any Darden students, honestly, because if you have a venture, you have an idea. It's a great opportunity to kind of grow that and and to sort of see what might be possible. Even if you don't have an idea, it's great to go through the process of trying to come up with an idea and get it to the place where you might. By launch it, I think a lot of students also kind of view that kind of entrepreneurial mindset as a, as a skill set as much yeah. as anything. How do you how do you get better at the work that you're doing? 
uh, well, those skills can be useful as well. So Janelle, what's what's next for Boyd Crew Wines? What, what, what comes after this podcast? So after this podcast, um, you know, we, we want to share it, of course, uh, so that people can hear uh, what we're up to. But we are, and so we're in the process of um, just creating more visibility for the company. Um, two things that are really instrumental for us is number one, like I just men- mentioned, um, increasing our marketing efforts so that we can get more eyes on, more visibility on Boyd Crew Wines. So people know that we're here and that we're able to ship to 38 states right to the, their front doors. Um, but also really also allowing people to be able to taste and, and pair our, our wine with their own experiences is um, is going to be instrumental as well. And so we have several uh, experiences, events where we are partnering with local organizations, um, of a few company uh, companies where we're going to be hosting different tastings, but um, somewhat, you know, unique. Like one is a uh, art and it's a uh, local women's art gallery that we're gonna be partnering with and we'll be pairing our wines with the local artists and the wine, um, excuse me, the art that the local artists, um, you know, that they that they create um, and sharing why this particular wine is kind of paired with this artist style, right? So something that's a little bit different, a little out of the box, but those are the type of experiences that we feel like are, are in alignment, you know, with, with what we are, um, showcasing, you know, to, to the world. Yeah, that certainly sounds like it aligns with what Matthew was saying earlier, that you're not so much focused on the flavor profile, but rather what this wine would be suitable uh, to, to enjoy with uh, an activity, that sort of thing. Um, so Matthew, if people want to learn more about Boyd Crew Wines, where where, th- where can they go again? So uh, you can go to boydcrewwines.com. Once again, that's boydcrewwines.com. And you can order our three wines online. We ship um, to 38 states, as Janelle said earlier. Um, you can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, also under Boyd Crew Wines as well. So, you know, tons of opportunities to stay connected with us and definitely become a subscriber. You can become a subscriber on our website where you can subscribe and hear all the upcoming events that we have going on. Just subscribe to our newsletter and you'll find out about when we're having that wine tasting, where we'll be next. Um, and then we'll also give people updates on where we're going to be featured at. You know, we're currently working with a couple of distributors to possibly featured in a couple of different, you know, local stores as well. So we're really excited about that for the D.C., Maryland, Virginia market. Um, but, you know, stay tuned because we're always going to be trying to provide some updated and new, exciting news as it comes along. So we're really uh, excited about how this venture is, is shaping out and we can't wait to be able to continue to share it with the world. Well, Matthew and Chanel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to share more of your entrepreneurial uh, journey with our listeners. Matthew, congratulations again on completing the program. And we look forward to hearing more about Boyd Crew Wines. Best of luck in the months ahead. Thank Thank you, Brian. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that was my interview with Matthew and Janelle Boyd, all about their wine venture, Boyd Crew. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at exec, that's E-X-E-C, M-B-A at dark.virginia.edu. Till next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.